Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. What's up, y'all? This is Zach with Living Corporate. Listen, I am really excited about today's pod. Um, we talk a lot about entrepreneurship and we've even like, you know, we've delved into the VC space, but I don't know how much we've talked about like being a black founder, specifically in tech, but even outside of tech and how to create systems and structures that don't leave you vulnerable or exploited. And so I'm really excited about today's guest, Kimberly Bryant, who's a variety of things for being an educator and a mentor and a public speaker. She's also most commonly known um, as the founder of Black Girls Code. And um, she and I have been in communication for some years. And I'm finally really, really, really honored and happy that she was able to make time for us to live in corporate. You hear me joke with her a little bit about that. But listen, I really can't wait for y'all to check into this interview. OK, so I'm not even going to like do too, 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 too much on this intro. What I want us to do is I want us to tap in with Tristan and then you're going to hear the interview we have with uh, Miss Bryant and then I will be back. All right. See you soon. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, let's talk about a method to help you develop new habits. Have you ever tried to start doing something new but had difficulty sticking to it? Maybe you want to read more, go to the gym, take some classes, or even begin searching for a job. Well, habit stacking is a methodology that can help you create new habits incrementally. Habit stacking is the idea that you can create a new habit by piggybacking off an already established habit. This behavioral science strategy helps you make strong connections in an effort to pick up that new habit. Let's talk about how it works. First, choose one new habit to focus on at a time. When you settle on the habit you want to focus on, you can figure out the time that makes sense to work on the new habit. For example, if you're looking to learn a new skill online, it might make the most sense to do that over your lunch break or in the morning over coffee. Next, leverage a well-established habit as an anchor. Things like your morning routine, morning coffee, eating lunch at noon, or even taking the dog out are all habits. To habit stack, pick an anchor habit like those that is well-established and tie your new habit to the old one. Lastly, you wanna start small. If you're looking to learn a skill, start with five minutes of learning a day or take a course for as long as it takes you to eat a meal. The idea is that you wanna create small successes to reinforce the new habit. Habit stacking can be a great tool to use in the workplace to learn a new skill or improve your time management. Test it out and see how it goes for you. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn.
Kimberly Bryant. How are you doing? I'm doing well, sir. It's good to be here. It's good. To, it's good to have. Good to have you here. You know, this is this is a, a long time coming. I'm really thankful. You know, I've been in your DMs, not thirsty, but you know, respect. I would say respectfully <laughs> thirsty. Respectfully thirsty since 2019. I feel like it's a loaded question, but ask anyway. How are you doing? I am doing better than could be expected given all the things going on in the world at large and um, some of the things going in the, on in my world um, and uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for that I'm grateful for every day to be able to get up and continue to you know walk in some purpose that I and do some of the things that I love and, and things that I care about so I'm here well I'm, I'm thankful that you're here and we're going to talk about the world at large and the world of uh, of, of Miss Kimberly Bryant uh, simultaneously uh, at the same time. So, right. so, so let, let's talk a little bit about your name is most commonly associated with Black Girls Code. Um, I'm curious as to like what was the initial mission and passion and purpose behind creating Black Girls Code all those moons ago. Mm. So as the story has been told by myself, you know, primarily, but others as well, many times, many times, time and time again, um, I created Black Girls Code primarily to support my daughter, Kai, and her interest in computer science and technology. And when this organization came to fruition, it was way back, you know, almost 11 years ago now, in 2010, uh, when Kai was starting to express some interest in in technology and learning about coding, uh, primarily from the lens of being a heavy gamer. And as I, you know, look for opportunities here in the Bay Area, this is is where we lived then and we're still here now, but at that time, you know, this coding for kids was just starting to kind of percolate as something that was happening in different pockets all over the city and all over the Bay Area. And as I was getting her involved in these external workshops and events, I was finding that those those venues did not have very many students of color, very few girls in them. And this idea for creating Black Girls Code was really birthed because I saw a need, I saw a gap, and I wanted my daughter to to know that she was not the only little black girl interested in these things. And I wanted her to feel a community, you know, of other techies and, and geeky girls that like some of the same things she was interested in. And so I created the organization primarily for that reason, um, to really support her and her passion for technology. You know, um, the, the STEM space continues to be where the future is, right? Mm-hmm. And as I think about like just coding, like just the, like the very act of coding and like being able to understand the language of these machines and these and these networks, I'm curious, like, what is your prediction for like black folks and STEM this decade? Right. So we look up in 2030. What things do you expect to see? That's a great question, Zach. And I, I'm thinking about a conversation I had earlier 
this morning um, with an organization um, that's doing some work with educators, specifically in K through 12, and talking to them about this, you know, concept around the future of learning. And one of the things that I shared with them is that, you know, what I created within Black Girls Code, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, was really based on this notion of um, what we were teaching from a, a frame of reference based on what, where we were and where we were going with Web 2. And what I shared with them, it was like, well, but I don't, I no longer think that that is where we are going um, as, as a tech industry. I don't think we're, we're, we're going to stay in that realm of Web, web 2, although there's you know, robust debate on either side. I think, you know, Web3 is here to stay. And I think that means that what we teach this generation and future generations about technology and an intersection of technology with creativity and even that intersection with ownership of your work and your what you are creating in this community-based, uh, decentralized technology world is very different than what we were doing back in 2010. You know, we were teaching students how to build a website or we we're teaching them how to build a mobile app. We're teaching them uh, frameworks that they did not own and have ownership of. And that's very different than I think what we need to teach now. And I think where, where the tech industry is going is very different um, when we think of it from the realm of Web3, decentralized networks, um, ownership and creativity. So approaching technology from a left brain and right brain perspective means that our students of the future and Black people, certainly as creatives, are now not seeing such a distinction. So I, I see um, creatives, you know, that are people of color that are tapping into the web, Web3, as a source of being able to get that work out into the world. I see um, students like my daughter who is an artist and a techie seeing ways that she can leverage her creative, you know, interests and still be able to, you know, also be a technologist. And I think that's important that we don't have to segregate creativity from this, this, the, really the A and the steam, you know, the artistic part of what, you know, that sits in this, when we talk about steam, that's really here now. Like we talked about that a lot, <laughs> for the last 10 years, but this is like truly evidence of what that means when we talk about creativity in the field of STEM. And I think that requires us as educators, as parents, you know, as people in the industry to really rethink our frame of reference when we talk about what technology is, what it has been and where it's going in the future. You know, it's interesting, like I've been having, so I maybe you can help educate me in real time and the folks listening in on living corporate like have you been plugged into like this whole like these DAOs? i think that's, that's what mm-hmm. they're called mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. so let so let me tell you like my perspective and i want you to check me around like you know zach that's not how it is or whatever but so it's funny i was talking to like this vc firm because i was exploring like maybe maybe living corporate should get into vc or like i didn't know right i was just like just trying to learn or whatever and so i got connected to this this group and this, and they were really specifically helping folks turn their companies into DAOs. 
and we were talking and I was like, okay, so help me understand like um, who has control of the DAO. He's like, well, everybody has control. Like it's decentralized. Like everyone, the the organization it's, it's uh, by vote. And he was kind of at a high level explaining it to me. And I Googled a couple of things. My challenge with like some of these things that when they talk about decentralized, like some of these movements, quote unquote, that seem to talk about decentralization, Kimberly, is like, it feels disempowering to me as a black founder who created something so that I could have control outside of like these racist corporate contexts. And so like, it's confusing to me that like, like why historically marginalized people would create something only to cede their power to like a big anonymized or semi-anonymized group. Like, what am I missing? I don't think you're missing anything. And I, I think. What <laughs> oh, no, you, that's terrible. No, that's... I, no, no. I think it's, it's, it's good because I think understanding it is, 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 is power, right? It's it part of understanding knowledge is power. So, one of the words that you said was power, like seeding my power as a founder of color for something I created. And I think that is what this is all about. It is power. It is re-envisioning what power looks like for us, right? So I think, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about this, this concept of, you know, we can't, create something different using the master's tools right so as as we seek to like do something different from because of all the racial trauma that we've experienced as you know professionals and just black people people of color in the world and then we get our own i think we often try to recreate we actually try to recreate what we experience from what we think is the seat of power, the seat of control, right? And we think that makes it all better. But I'm here to tell you that it does not. <laughs> so like I'm telling you, like it does not make it better. Like it, it makes it different because now we are the ones sitting in that um, seat of authority. We're the one with the positional authority, the positional power. But all those issues that we experience, they're still there because we're trying to recreate the same model that we experienced um, when we were disenfranchised. And I think what these new concepts of shared power, shared authority um, allow us to envision is like, how could we do it differently, right? How could we innovatively share power and control in a way that's more empowering of others and, and not putting one person at this top of the period and everybody beneath it? Um, so I'm not saying that it's right. I'm not saying that, you know, the other way, the doubt is wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's a different way for us to envision how we may be able to democratize power in a way that everyone feels apart, everyone feels empowered and not disempowered, even if it's a black person at the at the top of the pyramid, right? This is, so it's not going to be that. But so like, this is a way that we democratize control, and I think that's very different than what we're all used to, and it, and which sometimes makes it difficult. For, for those of us who've been, myself included, like, I'm going to be honest right here. Let me keep it real. Like, it's even, 
it's difficult for me because I understand like what it is to build something from nothing and then have others that come in and are, are still contributing to the work. But you're thinking like, well, but I did all this work to build this and now you're you're questioning my authority. Well, yeah, then they are questioning our authority. And that's okay. But we gotta get comfortable with that being okay. And I think these models allow us to actually have a tangible tool to kind of to I would say wrestle with this this notion of you know, as I said, creating more equity in these structures that allow shared control. So one, thank you. I appreciate the context. And I hear you about the idea of things needing to be different. I think for me, and this is on me, right? This is like a lesson for everybody is like just learning and getting all the information you can. Cause like I initially got nervous as I was like, "Eh, I don't really understand this. And then two, like, I'm still trying to get this thing like up to where like I want it to get to a certain I want to get living corporate to a certain place. And so why would I do this right before like right on while we're on the cusp of doing all this really dope stuff? We're about to release a bunch of stuff this year, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so I think to your the other point you said around like that, that racialized trauma also kicked in of like, well, nah, because I've you know, I've seen where like, you know, I'm the face, but then I'm also getting like people, you know, there's a bunch of people on the, on the back end or man, I'm just one voice, even though I was, I was bait and switched. And so trying to avoid all those things can kind of, I think, you know, have you maybe missing out on trying something different or something radically right. different. So I received right. that. And you know, the thing about it is that, uh, you know, my daughter, as I said, you know, I created Black Rose Code for, you know, it was, Initially, one of her passions, you know, very young, at a very young age was art and, and she's an artist, she's a musician. And one of the things that she found her way into doing in Web3 is being a part of this DAO with other artists, other Black artists that are creating these, these events, these activities, these art activations around all of these amazing Web3 artists. And they created, they have a DAO. And I think what, you know, I am not personally in a DAO, although I, you know, certainly um, active in the Web3 space. I'm not in a DAO um, personally. And listening to her experience and how she moves as a member of this DAO, but not the only one, it is even eye opening for me because I'm a person who has been a founder and has led a life um, that's very different than the one she's creating with her fellow partners. So I, I not we often have these conversations because I'm like, well, who's making the decisions? Who you in a funding call? Well, who's on the call? Who's going to be talking to this potential funder in VC? And she's like, well, we all are. And I was like, well, that's never going to work. <laughs> like somebody, <laughs> because, you know, that is what I know. And I think, you know, being able, it's been such a gift to be able to be here and witness her on this journey where to her, it, it, it it makes all of the sense in the world to, you know, share these decisions with her other co-founders or even, you know, I had a conversation with her about something regarding their funding or how they were going to, they should perhaps pay themselves and, you know, and not just do all this work and put all the work into the business. 
And I asked her about it a day or so after. She was like, yeah, we just voted on that. And so, yeah, we're going to start doing that. So it wasn't that like one person got to make that decision, which is what it would have been in my world. It was like, oh, yeah, we talked about that and we voted on it. So we're going to do it. And I was like, wow, like this is this is really a different way for us to interrogate how we hold power as a people, as business owners, as entrepreneurs, as innovators. And I think it it could possibly, you know, create more equitable um, ways of of how we work and how we create. And I'm pretty excited about what that may become in the future, even if I'm not the one doing it right now. It's just, and I think it's to your point though, like, and I, and you and I have talked about this like privately, and I know I've said it publicly, is like it, it, you're right that we can't expect um, one as like just black folks and certainly black founders and creatives like we can't use the same tools that oppressors use on us. We can't use them against on one another and think that we're going to be successful, and we can't use them. Period. Expect some radically different outcome. Mm-hmm. Or, or any pos- frankly, any positive, sustainable outcome. Even white folks using these capitalistic tools. I mean, we're looking around; the world is on fire right now. So, mm-hmm. but but let's do this now because well, we seventeen minutes, uh, almost eighteen minutes in. You know, we're gonna talk about that one thing. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so help me understand what's going on with you today and Black Girls Code. What what I read the headlines. I see, you know, I, you know, you, you know, you didn't, you didn't come to me for the exclusive. I saw you went to a couple other, you know, bigger brands. We can talk about that later, but (laughs) what's really going on? Like, give me, give me, I don't want the tea. I want the, I want the real, like what, what's going on? Well, okay. You want the real. So back in, in, um, like I'll say back in 1969, (laughs) but I'm going to take you about that back that far, but I will say that, um, Back in 2020, and I've thought about this a lot lately, back in 2020, we really started to go through this this radical transformation as an organization, as many companies were going through in 2020 when the pandemic hit. And for Black Girls Code, the impact was pretty significant in that, you know, we've been doing all this work for almost 10 years by that time. And Every single thing that we were doing, you know, reaching almost, you know, seven, six thousand students a year was in person, like everything. And all of these 15 chapters that we have was in-person workshops, in-person events. So the impact of the pandemic on us was, you know, it, it was drastic in that we had to shut down everything, including, you know, shutting down the two offices that we have, you know, in California and New York and take all of our teams virtual by the almost a little bit for the middle. So like um, Q2 of, of 2020, we came up with this uh, approach to still being able to reach our students and, you know, shifted into this virtual model and started to do all of our workshops online, um, started to really engage with a broad, even broader community. And we saw our numbers soar. And then the summer of 2020 hit, the summer of resistance threw us uh, another, you know, curve in our pathway. You know, a a a, a good, somewhat quote unquote, um, curve out of the adversity of, of 
the, the murder of George Floyd from the standpoint that the organization's profile became elevated. And as a result of that, we got a, an, an avalanche of support and saw our revenues um, increase exponentially. So the organization increased its revenues from about, you know, five to six million dollars a year to over 30 million dollars in that one year. So we were going through all this change, but we were doing it, you know, in the midst of this pandemic, this global pandemic, and the organization was still growing and we were not growing together from the standpoint that nobody was seeing each other in the office, but we were still hiring people because we had to, to keep up with all of this demand and this, this growing um, wave of support that we have. We, we, doubled our team, more than doubled our team but by the end of 2020. So as we came into 2021, that's when we started to feel the impact of all those changes that were happening in 2020. And we started to have some unrest, for lack of a better term, within some pockets of the organization. Uh, we had, like, like many other companies, we started to have feel impacts of this great resignation. So I know it wasn't just us, but we certainly felt it as well. But some of the folks that left our organization um, left, well, this could be for other companies too, but there were certainly folks that left um, Black Girls Code that were not happy about their experiences there. And they complained um, to our board of directors. And as a result of those complaints, uh, from a couple of folks that left the organization in 2021, the board of directors decided to do an investigation. And um, But before they started that investigation, they suspended me um, because a lot of these folks were unhappy and particularly pointed a finger at me. And it started this whole wave of, of, of a battle, if you will, between uh, myself and these folks that were on my board of directors who um, made this the decision uh, to move me out of the way uh, while they uh, purported to do an investigation. And, and that's, you know, that's the real. That's not no tea. I don't know if that's no tea, but that's the specifics of what went down. And, you know, this internal battle, if you will, it, it continues with, you know, with me, um, really pushing to have transparency in, in terms of what this investigation is all about. And, you know, this uh, some members of the board sticking to, um, I don't know what's the good word for it, <laughs> or, or, or not being very willing to be as forthright and transparent with me about what the issues actually are. And so we're, we're still kind of at a a standstill between uh, myself and them organizationally, but the organization has has continued to do work, and there are folks there that are still, you know, driving the work with our students and our chapters, and hopefully, um, we'll continue to do this work, you know, for many, many, many years into the future. Um, but at the moment, I am not there, being the one in the driver's seat doing it. I remember when the when it, the news when it came out and. You know, you initially made a tweet and then some other folks had some things to say and folks pointed to Glassdoor to your point around complaints. And I guess for me, it's like, how does it feel? Right. I don't know. Like, I can't imagine. Like, let's say if 
let's say, um, let's say if I brought a bunch of folks in to like, I, cause I don't, we don't live in corporate doesn't have a board, right? Like we have an advisory, we're building out our advisory board. But we don't have like a board of directors, right? Zach is in charge. Um, and, and I, I, I listen to and seek a lot of feedback from mentors and people that I know love me and that I love, but in terms of like, okay, what's our direction? What's our strategy? Those decisions fall on me. What part of just the initial process when you found out, Hey, I'm suspended. Like, I don't want to say what was the first feeling that came, but maybe what, what surprised you the most about that when you, the way that you were told, like what, what about that was probably like the most just kind of like blindsiding for you? Well, I think for me and, and what, what it was then and what it remains to, to date is just a deep feeling of betrayal. That's to put it out there and keep it real. Like it was, it was a deep sense of betrayal, like deep betrayal because I felt, and I still do, like there was such an injustice in how this was really executed and, 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 you know, how it was done. It's like, it's just, there was such a deep level of unfairness to it. And, and, and that's, hurtful as a person that, you know, like I started this organization with my dinner for one K that that was how we started this organization. And I, and, and for those people that are in my network and, you know, like that are in my community that know me, well, they know that they know that like in the beginning, it was just me, my little four one K and an intern. And we built this organization on our back and, and for years, um, all of this work that folks know about Black Girls Code and, you know, the work and, and the level of, you know, really, I would say, visibility the organization has gained over the last 10 years. Um, we eventually were able to build a team that and now the organization is really kind of just starting to scale because we finally have resources to do it. But before that, ooh, I mean, I did so much work to to get us to where we are. Like I had to middle literally move mountains and so to do all of that work and then to bring in folks on a quote-unquote board advisory board board of directors that is supposed to help me do this work um that didn't join until much later you know we didn't have this board until 2018 uh, when a lot of that heavy lifting had been done and to you know, kind of like get the organization, you know, through a, a whole pandemic, like the panorama was no joke. <laughs> like I was, I was up and, you know, carrying a lot of that burden by myself because, you know, I was afraid my team wouldn't even live. Like, you know, that's what everybody at that time mm -hmm. was thinking. And people was dying to be clear. People was dying. People lost right. people. But, you know, like I felt like in 2020 was probably I, at the time, I felt 2020 was one of my the hardest years of my life as a founder. But, you know, now I might revisit that. But it was hard. It was very hard. And, and I had to do a lot of that journey alone, you know, in the, in the, in the seat as a leader. And so to come back in, in the end of 2021, where we really were doing work to, you know, address, you know, some of the friction within the organization and not have a supportive board to help us get through that 
it hurt and it felt like betrayal and it, it just felt very unjust and unfair. And and it still feels that way. But I also feel that um, everything happens for a reason. And I think that, you know, my calling and my mission here is, is still very clear of what I need to do. And it probably expanded that a bit now. You know, what type of things need to change, you know, around board governance and how we support, you know, founders and leaders of color that do have executive director roles that are CEOs of their companies and really being able to be a bit of a bridge to giving them advice about like, hey, yeah, you probably don't want to do this or like you need to be careful about this when it comes to just what you said, you know, giving up power, you know, and bringing in these people as a board or adding these people to your organization. And I think for me, you know, it's hoping that my story can be a lesson and a cautionary tale and even perhaps a motivation for other leaders, um, especially black, black leaders and black women in particular. So they know that if they get in this space, you know, that they can be successful and overcome. And hopefully they won't get into some of the same, make some of the same mistakes I did. Well, and and let's talk about it. Right. Because like one, one, I do want to talk a little bit um, in this conversation, just kind of like lessons learned in terms of like board structure and rules and like how to really make sure that those things are. It's not about them necessarily having to edge in your favor, but that they don't leave you in a lurch or um, leave you, you know, feeling vulnerable, vulnerable. That's the way of vulnerable. Let's talk about this, though, because, you know, I took the time, right? And, you know, I, before we had this conversation, I clicked around, I read, I tried to get as much little information I could, you know, black tech and black founder, Twitter and social. And um, this space is pretty small. But so so let me ask let me ask this. As I looked at some of the complaints or the issues around the what, what folks would allege, oh, well, you know, Kimberly is she's running around and like it's hard to get her a hold of her or. There were think there were com- there were complaints and there were there were frustrations. I guess my question is like, is it reasonable that there may have been legitimate points of feedback and growth, but that did not necessarily rise to the point of you being suspended? Like, do you believe that you have things that you can work on and grow, but that don't necessarily mean that it translates to you being penalized in the way that you have? That's my question to you. Absolutely. But I mean, I think that the the truth of the matter is that every single founder does. Every single founder does. You know, if we look at some of the 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 latest, you know, offerings on on Uber and you know, <laughs> uh, what's the name of it? Uh, WeWork. We will see. You know, oh my much, gosh, WeWork. Yeah, we will see much more egregious activities on those founder stories of our peers who are not people of color than than you'll see, certainly than you'll see about me, but also from other leaders that come from marginalized communities. And I think the issue is that we are not given this, a friend of mine, another colleague call, called it the spaciousness to have areas of growth as, as founders of color. We don't, we're not given that spaciousness. It's like, oh, like you are not perfect right here? Oh, throw them away. <laughs> Get them out of here. And that's not the way it should be. And especially for 
founders who are holding the weight of the world often like us you know the, we're, we're holding the fate of our whole darn community on the, our shoulders and also trying to run a business like how how, how does that work <laughs> so like you mean to tell me like i'm trying to get my my whole team which which is under resourced and and over overtaxed you know in terms of the work we need to do we're in the middle of a pandemic oh and our our, our people over here are getting killed on the street right and, and i'm supposed to get all this around I'm supposed to be available like every time that you need like how does that work tell me that because i spent had the first i feel like i spent like two or three months of 2020 just trying to make sure we got uh a, what did you call those loans? a ppp loan and i had yeah. to do it all that and just because I didn't, that was before we started to get resources. I didn't know if I was going to keep my people. And so, like, I think that this notion that uh, we are not giving room for growth and, and penalize, you know, harshly is what we see everywhere, not just in business. In business. And you know, we see it in the criminal justice system. You know, we see it in the educational system. That was me back 50 years ago in the educational system because I've always going to talk back in class. <laughs> like, right. I, I'm that person. Like, you tell me, duh, 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 duh. even when I was 10, I'd be like, no, I'm not, Miss Ann. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and I would, get, I would get in trouble for that. So, like, the overpenalization and criminalization and punishment for Black people is something that we have encounter for eons before I was even a, a notion on this earth. And we see that same thing reflected in the work world. And so the long-winded answer to your question is like, absolutely not. Do I think that, you know, what I encountered was, was, you know, was, is, was it valid? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But is there room for me to grow as a leader? As of course, all leaders should be continually trying to grow and trying to get better. And the the issue that I have is that that is what the role of the board of directors is to do. You are there to support the founder. Yes, you are there to protect the organization, but a part of that and your 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 fiduciary responsibility is to ensure that the leader has what he or she needs to run that organization. And if you, and I've said this in another interview, if you're not there to support the leader, what are you there for? That tells me that perhaps your motives are not as pure and on mission aligned as they should be. Man, because it, it's funny you went there because that was going to be my follow-up is it feels like, you know, Black folk, not it feels like the reality of the world. And of course, in the corporate space, this is not exclusive. Um, this is inclusive of, of the corporate workplace is black folks don't seem to they, they do not have as much grace to mess up. Mm-mm. Right. And, you know, I think like white, white folks, white adjacent folks, particularly white men, but white women, too, um, are able to like fail up mm-hmm. and fail up, fail up like exponentially up. Right. Um, Absolutely. Able to kind of like they'll see like the they're given every benefit of the doubt, and they're doing stuff like actually illegal and wrong. So like <laughs> right, and and so it, yeah, it 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 is, and it's been my experience, like just in my own career, where it's like, man, like okay, I made a mistake, and I remember 
like a quick side note. I remember when I was a consultant, this was years ago, and my coach was an older black woman Um, because in consulting, everybody has a career coach. And that's to help drive whatever engagement, whatever. They they really just kind of there to make sure you don't go too left or right. You kind of stay in the middle. But anyway, older black woman. And I'm I was I made a couple of like typos. Like I wasn't good on like I would leave, I would have typos or maybe just alignment things. Like my PowerPoints and presentations now are genuinely phenomenal. I I would put them against anybody. But at the time, I was really not good at that. Mm-hmm. And I remember my coach was like, You gotta be perfect. Mm-hmm. That was your feedback. That was her feedback. You got to be perfect. And I said, you're telling me that I have to be perfect at a job. She's like, yeah, you can't make mistakes. And I was like, okay, but what about it? No, you can't make mistakes. And like, I realized the reality of that because of the way the white supremacy is set up, but also Mm -hmm. like we as black folks, black and brown, we internalize that. And that's absolutely, that's, that's violent. Like you can't, you cannot tell. I was like 20, I think it was like 25 at the time. You're telling a 25-year-old black man, first-generation professional, second-generation reader, first-generation college graduate, you have to be perfect, right? That's crazy. Yeah. And and yet that's what we do. And then like and so then when you make mistakes, there is no there is no like grad there's no grace to like be coached and like hey Zach, we're going to sit you down over here and help you and do this for you and give you resources. No, actually, we're going to take stuff away from you, actually. Yeah. In fact, you might not even have a job. Absolutely. Or even being being given the benefit of the doubt first to ask questions first and, and, you know, jump to those final conclusions later. So like in my case, you know, in, in my scenario, I've never even been asked, you know, by my board of directors, like, well, can you tell us what was going on with these folks? Why would they say those things? Nobody ever asked me to this day what actually was happening with these people. Like, what was going on with them? Like, can you help? They never asked. They just assumed that it it was said, so it was correct. And I, I think that is like right in that notion that you said around, you know, it's not just white people that that penalize us harshly, you know, when we error and make mistakes. We've internalized that trauma so much that we now become the oppressors of our own. And I think that's that's the unfortunate piece is that we don't give each other grace to, you know, to make mistakes or just to be able to grow. And I, I think that's some of the healing that needs to, to happen and needs to occur. I remember um, back at the latter part of last year, I, I was having a meeting with some of my senior leadership team. And that morning, I think I had to I had to run some errands and do some things before I got there where everyone else was meeting. And I, I got there like just on time on the dot. And I would like rush to my office to put all my stuff down and, you know, I'm trying to get, I'm presenting first that morning. And so I'm also in my head trying to think about what I'm going to say and, you know, how I need to have this message land. And then we got together, you know, after, you know, I, I just went to my office, didn't, didn't really say anything to the team. And then we came back together. And I was like, hey, first, before we get started, let me just apologize for just running in, just sort of waving and going straight to my office. I was like, I was like, I had to do da 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 this morning and I was just really in my head trying to get myself aligned to what I needed to to say and what I needed to share. And, you know, I was just really focused. So, you know, please forgive me for not just, you know, stopping in and 
being, you know, collegial, like right when I came at the door, I'm trying to get myself in the mindset to, you know, do this meeting. And one of my team members was like, hey, like, I appreciate that. Like, nobody else has ever told me sorry for how they show up and where they have their mind and set up. Like, no other manager has ever done that. Now, I'm making an assumption that perhaps most of her other managers were not people of color. But it was just that notion, like you said, that if I have been a white man, like these things that I'm penalized for, will probably not even be an issue. But because I'm showing up as, you know, a black woman in a certain way or a black man in your case, no, 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 you, you, you can't, you got to get it 110% correct on the first time and you are no room for error or being an actual human being. And I think that's unfair. And not, not only unfair, I think it's unhealthy. And it's, it's not a productive way for us to be able to move forward um, and move, uh, move, I would say, purpose forward and missions forward as leaders of color. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I don't just say amen. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. because like, and I remember like just even, and I'm still, I'm still in therapy from just like years of internalized perfectionism and pressure and artificial urgency. Mm. Uh, you know, all all these things that we're like conditioned to to be and ways that we're conditioned conditioned to show up. It's harmful. And it and it has lingering effects in terms of how you just engage other people. So I a hundred percent agree with you about uh how unhealthy it is. Uh, so let's do this. Um, you know, we've been talking, you know, I, I, I'm confident we could go on probably for another hour or so. But here's what I'd like to I'd like to close with. What are three things. That you would tell. New black founders as it pertains to helping them create an environment where they can grow, but also not be. Uh, vulnerable to use your mm-hmm. language because and vulnerability, I think also I'm because you use the word and I've been thinking I, before we go too much further. I think it's interesting because like I do believe we're supposed to be vulnerable in terms of allowing ourselves to be coached and to grow. But I believe when and you correct me if I'm wrong, when you say vulnerable, I think you mean in terms of literally like putting yourself at risk of losing your position. Right. Yeah. 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 So I'd I'd love, I'd love to just hear any type of, if you, if you had to like kind of boil it down to three points of advice for new black founders as they move forward, like what would those things be? Um, So one of the things I've been doing lately is, and I, I hope to be doing in the future even more is having conversations like this, like those questions and coaching questions to black founders and, and women in leadership as well. And the things that I, I say, these three things that um, a, a leader will need. I just had a conversation with a, an amazing sister yesterday that I think is really phenomenal as an innovator. And I was like, you need to build your board of advisors for her. Um, it's a board of advisors as she's building this company. And I was like, they need to be people that you trust and know things that you don't. But more so than anything, these are people that you know, you have a personal relationship with, you trust them to have your back when you are not in the room and certainly when you are. <laughs> like, and You need to entrust them explicitly because those people are there to open doors for you, 
and as well as to be parachute, to be that safe space, that safe landing. And as one of the most important decisions that you will probably ever make in your business, period. I think another thing is when, and I think I talked about this, maybe I tweet a lot, as you well know, but maybe it was in a conversation, but maybe it was a tweet. You know, like someone had made a post, I think the other day on Twitter around, they interviewed, you know, this eight or 10 CEOs who had grew businesses to eight figures and um, none of them had ever fired anyone ever. And he found that to be odd. And he's like, but they said that, you know, they probably should have fired some some of these folks that, you know, on the path to growing these eight-figure businesses. And this whole notion of hire slow, fire fast, you know, maybe it's, it's not valid because that's not what these um, CEOs had done. And I was like, I can tell you as a CEO who has grown a business to eight figures that that is true. Their experience is true because it was mine. So when I look back at it, you know, I, I certainly had situations where something in my gut, not even just with hiring and firing, it could even be with, you know, selecting a board members, but certainly in hiring and who I was bringing in or certain business decisions that something didn't feel right. You know, like there was a flag or, maybe in the interview or, or a candidate would say something or just something in my gut that did not feel right. And I would second guess myself and still make the decision, even though like something in my intuition, my natural instinct told me, mm, this doesn't feel right. Never do that. Because that voice that's telling you something's not right is, is for protection and you should follow it. So like I know we always say this saying of like trust your gut, but I don't believe we always do that because we can talk ourselves, especially as, as leaders and founders. and You can talk yourself out of a lot of things. Don't do it. If you have something, you know, trust that gut instinct. Something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't sound right. All the, the, the I's that don't feel dotted, T's not crossed, trust your gut instinct and, and keep it moving. And I would say, you know, last but not least, like continuing to be on this path of growth, you know, growth mindset, you know, that's it's often taught in, in schools to our, our kids, this notion of growth mindset. But I think as a leader, like we also have to continually be in this this pathway of growing. You know, like I am a Gen Xer and I'm proud of that. But I can tell you that the what I know and where I was taught as an uh, you know, early in my career to do things as a Gen Xer is very different than what works in the workforce now with millennials and certainly not with Gen Z and, and this alpha generation that's coming up next. And being able to be flexible enough to relearn patterns that you have been taught years ago of how to do things, just like reflecting on our conversation earlier about, you know, shared power and and collective authority in a DAO and, you know, whatever. You know, we have to continue to be on this path of learning. We have to consistently push against these notions of how we think she should be. And we should be gracious enough to um, understand that we don't know it all and the world is continuing to change and we got to change with it if we want to stay in the game.
I love it. Uh, Kimberly, thank you for being a guest. I really appreciate the fact that we're able to finally connect. And Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope that our listeners are hearing how they how they picked up something. I've learned a lot, and I just really appreciate you sharing your story. You know, uh, look, I, I offer this sometimes to our guests. Is there anybody you want to call out? You want to create some beef on Living Corporate just for the sake of uh, clicks? Would you like to uh, stir up any additional drama or mess? No, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to stir up no mess. But I will say this. I will end with this. Like, you know, for anybody who's out there and listening, they've been through a thing, especially if they, you know, like our founder, leader, business owner, understand that trouble don't last always. Everything happens for a reason. And the best advice that I can give you is keep moving onward and upward. Come on now. Let's make sure to talk soon. You're a friend of the show. You're welcome back anytime. Um, whatever it is, uh, as your journey with Black Girls Code um, and whatever it is you got going on, Kimberly, please know like you have a space here. You know, after you talk to CBS and Fox News and um, <laughs> TV One and BET and um, everybody else, and you want to come to us, just um, know we have a slot for you. Okay. I appreciate you, Jack. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. We'll talk soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. And we're back. Yo, shout out to Kimberly Bryant. Shout out to Black Girls Code. Shout out to all black and brown tech and non-tech founders everywhere you're needed. You're appreciated. Make sure that you build yourself a personal set of directors, board of directors that will help you look out for you and advocate for you and make sure that you're protecting yourself while also giving yourself as much space possible to grow. It's a really unique space to be in, like just this world and hopefully you're able to pick up on the nuance of that discussion again i can't thank uh, kimberly enough and uh until next time y'all this has been zach you listen to living corporate make sure to give us five stars on apple Podcasts. till next time peace living corporate is a podcast by living corporate llc our logo was designed by david dawkins our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.